All right, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For those who may be visiting, we, we started a three-week series on the resurrection on Easter last Sunday, and we are working our way through the longest section of teaching on the resurrection in the whole of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. We're in the middle of that series right now. Lord willing, we will be heading to the Gospel of Matthew and picking that back up uh, just a few weeks from now. I'm going to read through our passage for today, and then we will work back through it. 1 Corinthians 15, we will start in verses tw- verse 20, and we will go through verse 34. Again, this is God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, <clears throat> by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let me just quickly, I won't spend a long time reviewing this, but I just have to mention the first section of this chapter to make sense of where we are now. I want to reread an earlier part from the chapter that's just crucial to understand Paul's argument. Look at verse 12 with me to remember why Paul is, is spending so much time on this issue. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, I don't think this is controversial. That verse tells you why Paul is spending, I think it's 58 verses in this chapter to argue this point, because there were some members of the Corinthian church, there were people in the church who were starting to doubt whether or not bodily resurrection was even a biblical concept at all. Just imagine Paul when he finds out about this. Some of the people in the church are doubting bodily resurrection in general. That's amazing. Well, next week we will get into this more specifically, but in the Greco-Roman mindset, the physical was considered bad, undignified, dirty, unclean. And the idea was that when you die, you really get what you're looking for, which is your soul gets freed from your body. And the body is really below you, it's beneath you, and the soul is the really pure part of you. And so if I can shed my body and just be a free soul somewhere in the universe, that is really living. And Paul and the whole Bible says, no. Let me just say here, if you have grown up, and some of us grow up with this not even thinking about it, 
If you have grown up in a church and you just sort of assume that the moment you die as a Christian, your body is, of course, buried, and your soul goes into the presence of Jesus. Now, that's true. That's, that's, Paul says to depart is to be with Christ, which is far better. So, we're not arguing that. But if I think a lot of us have thought growing up, that's the end of everything. You die, your body is buried, and your soul goes to heaven forever. End of story. That is, Paul would say, that is not actually Christianity if you stop there. Because if you, if you leave out the bodily resurrection, you lose the whole gospel. Paul says bodily resurrection is an essential part of the gospel because Jesus died in his body, he was buried in his body, and he raised bodily from the dead on Easter Sunday, on the resurrection Sunday, and he ascended bodily into heaven. Talking about this at school a couple weeks ago, one of my students said, a girl in my junior class just raised her hand, she said, does that mean Jesus has a body right now? I said, yes, it does. Jesus has a human body right now. He always will have that human body. So, the bodily resurrection is an essential part to the Christian faith. Yes, if I die now, my soul goes to heaven, but my soul does not stay disembodied. Eventually, Christ will return, and my body will be raised from the dead. It doesn't matter if a Christian was martyred and his body was burned, or the ashes were taken and thrown out in the middle of nowhere into the ocean, or burned again and disfigured and thrown underneath the ground and buried. God will reconfigure us. He will bring us back together, and we will have a bodily existence in a new heavens and new earth. That is where we are heading. And Paul knows some are doubting this, and so Paul brings all that he has to the table to argue for the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he backs it up with the eyewitness accounts of what was seen after Christ had been raised. Just to review last week, verse 4, he's buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is not a new teaching, resurrections in the Old Testament. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, have died. Then he appeared to James, that's the Lord's brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We have hundreds of people at the time this letter is written who will tell you if you ask them, I saw Jesus physically, literally raised from the dead. Hundreds of people, when this letter was written, had seen Jesus after the crucifixion, alive. One time eating fish in an upper room. One time cooking a breakfast, including fish, on the Sea of Galilee. There seems to be a pattern going on here. Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus, a seven-mile walk. Over and over, He appears. He appears on a hillside. He appears at the ascension in Jerusalem. On and on, He is seen by hundreds of people who bore witness for decades after the events, telling them, telling others that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. So, let's give an outline here for today. I'm just titling the sermon, Understanding and Applying the Doctrine of Resurrection. Understanding and Applying the Doctrine of Resurrection, and I have three points. Point number one covers verses 20 and 20 to 22. It's the first fruits of resurrection. Point number one, the first fruits of resurrection, verses 20 to 22. Point number two, the order of resurrection. This is verses 23 to 28, the order of resurrection. And finally, uh, point number three, the Christian life and resurrection. The Christian life and resurrection, verses 29, verses 29 to 34. So, I'm going to start with this first point, the first fruits of resurrection. Let me read again here, verses 20 to 22. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul sees the entire Bible as a single narrative from God that begins in the garden with Adam and Eve and ends in the new creation with Jesus, the last Adam. And here is what I think Paul may be doing at this particular moment. He wants to persuade people of the truth of the resurrection, so what does he do? What does he do? He says this, okay, a lot of the, all the people in the church would at least say that they believe the Scriptures, right? That's how they're part of the church. They, they, they affirm the Scriptures, which would at this time be primarily the Old Testament with a few other letters that are being written at the time, like 1 Corinthians. But they would affirm the Old Testament. And Paul says, okay, some of you are doubting resurrection, but you affirm the Old Testament. Let's think about the logic of this for a moment. Why is it that we die in the first place? And he reminds them, he takes them back to the garden. The original intention of God was not that we experience death. The idea was that Adam and Eve would successfully pass God's test, that we would never die. We would eat from what? The tree of life in the garden forever. That was the original design, that there would be no death in that sense. But Adam failed. And when Adam failed, death came with Adam. When you look at the news, the news is an endless cycle of horrific things that happen, often focusing on death itself. No one under, I mean, there's no one on earth who thinks that death is just the way things are supposed to be. Deep down, we know that death is a horrible reality. It's called the last enemy. The Bible calls death an enemy. Those who speak cavalierly about death are not being honest with themselves. People say, oh, it's no big deal. We're here and then we're gone. And we were, we just, it's no big deal. It's just the circle of life, the cycle of life. We're just kind of, we'll be here and then we'll be gone. Those people are not being honest with themselves of what death actually is and what death actually does. It was not the original intention. But get this. If it is true that God had one representative for us in the Garden of Eden named Adam, and he was, to use technical language, he was our federal head. He was our representative head in the Garden of Eden. What Adam did was going to reflect back on all of his descendants. And we are part of his offspring in that sense. We are his literal descendants from Adam and Eve. And Adam is our representative. If he succeeds, we succeed in Adam. If Adam fails, we fail in Adam. And the idea is this. If it is true that through Adam we all die, and we are all guilty, and we are all condemned in Adam. If that is true, and death is not God's original design, doesn't that leave a door open for there to be another federal head of the human race? Another representative of mankind who will be a better Adam, a true Adam, the last Adam who will come and be our representative, and if he fails, we fail in him, and if he succeeds, we succeed in him? Hold your spot here and turn backwards to the book right before, Romans chapter 5. I know the Sunday school class is getting there soon, so I don't want to steal any thunder from the Sunday school class covering this in a short time, but I just have to mention this passage because Paul goes into great detail on this subject of Adam and Christ. Let me take a moment to read a number of verses here, starting in chapter uh, Romans 5, verse 12. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, that's the law of Moses, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, you'll notice here that the way in which Adam and Jesus are similar is, is true. They're very similar in some ways, but they're also what? They're also largely opposites at the same time. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's uh, sin. For the judgment following one trespass, that's eating the fruit, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, that's Jesus' life and death, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, if this is a little murky, follow me here. I think this gets even clearer in verse 18, what he's saying. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, do you see that verse? This is a verse I remember explicitly, I remember this verse, wrestling with this in, in college. Look at it one more time. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam, led to condemnation for all men. And th- this, this is, this is a, a pretty shocking, but I think uh, definitely biblical doctrine. This is the doctrine that you've heard of, original sin. The idea is that when Adam sinned, it wasn't simply that we are fallen like Adam after we are born, but that when Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam. Now, if you've never heard this before, this is going to sound odd probably the first time you hear it. But when Adam sinned, we were condemned in Adam because he represented us. And what he did, we did in him our representative. And you might say, that doesn't sound fair, and I don't know if I like this arrangement, and those kinds of things. Well, let me just tell you this. Number one, the doctrine that all human beings are fallen and sinful is one of the most empirically empirically verifiable doctrines in all the Bible because just look at human history. Is something terribly wrong? Why is it that everyone who's ever lived lies? Everyone who ever has ever lived is proud. Everyone who's ever lived on and on has all kinds of issues. Where does this come from? The answer is it came through our fall in Adam, and we, because he represented us, we fell and we sinned in Adam. And if you say, I don't, I don't like that, well, well, listen, if it is true that one man could stand in our place and his failure or his success can be counted to us, if that's what happened in Adam, which I think this text teaches... Let me say again, that opens a door of mercy, because if one man could represent us, how could it not be that God would send a Savior who could be the last Adam, who could also be our representative? If you think the first one is not fair, how about this one? This one's certainly not fair. God sent His his Son. His Son lives a perfect and sinless life and never breaks a single commandment, always doing what the Father has given Him to do. He represents us. When Jesus lived the perfect life, if you're in Christ you lived a perfect life. When Jesus never lied, you in Christ get the credit for always telling the truth, even though you have lied, because Jesus was our representative. When Jesus drank the cup of judgment and died on the cross, you died on the cross in Jesus. Your sin was paid for because you were in Christ when Christ died. Your sins were there on Christ when He died, and all of God's wrath was exhausted on Christ. That is not fair. 
If we're, if we're going to talk about something not being fair here, what is not fair is that God would send His Son to save us mercifully in a way that we do not deserve, and that what He did, we did in Him our representative. And because He succeeded, we can succeed ultimately in Christ. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me reread verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Pause there. This is why Jesus had to be a human being. He's representing who? Human beings. We cannot have someone who is truly God and not truly man standing in our stead. We have to have someone who is truly God, infinitely glorious, and also truly man in order to stand in the place of human sinners. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, some people have very wrongly tried, and this is a fringe movement in Christian history, some people very incorrectly have tried to argue that this passage teaches that everyone will be saved. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we're all made alive. See, everyone is lost in Adam, everyone is saved in Christ. Well, for about a hundred reasons, if you read the rest of Paul's letters, you will see that that is not what Paul believes. Just read chapter 1. He talks about those who are being saved and those who are perishing in verse 18. He doesn't believe in universal salvation. But if you, if you doubt that, look at verse 23. He says, but each in its own order, Christ the first fruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. If you claim Christ, if you truly belong to Christ, you will be saved when Christ returns. But if you disown Christ, if you are not belonging to Christ, if you reject Christ, you will not receive salvation when He returns. One last point here on this first section. What does it mean that Christ is the first fruits? When a harvest is coming in, in Old Testament law, you would take the very first fruits of your harvest and you would offer them to God. And the idea was, it was saying that this part represents the whole. I am devoting all of myself to you, Lord. I'm, 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 all this is a gift from you. I'm de devoting it all to you. But also, first fruits says this, the first ripe fruit that is given to the Lord is a way of guaranteeing that much more fruit is coming that's going to be just like the first fruits. The first fruits are a sign of the rest of the harvest. What, what the rest of the harvest will be like is indicated by the first fruits. Now, there has been one person resurrected from the dead in human history. And you say, wait, what about Lazarus? What about a lot of people in the Bible? They were not resurrected in the final sense. There were bodily resuscitations, but Lazarus died again. Uh, all the people who are raised from the dead in the Bible, they would eventually, they would die again. But Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. He's the first fruits. So when you read, when I read the gospel accounts of the Easter story, and you see Jesus doing all that He does in those chapters of the gospels, you are seeing a picture of what our future is like. We are not going to be Christ, but we are going to have physical bodies that are like His. Philippians says that. We will have a glorious body like His glorious and glorified body. So He's the first fruits and the guarantee of the rest of the harvest. We are the rest of the harvest that come when Christ returns. So that's the first fruits of resurrection. Point number two is the order 
of resurrection. Verses 23 to 28. I'm going to take this in pieces here. Verse 23. So he's dealing with the order of resurrection. But each in his own order. Number first, Christ, the firstfruits. And then second, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then third, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. We'll come back to verse 28 in a moment. Hold your spot here and turn to the right to Hebrews chapter 2. Turn a few books to the right to Hebrews chapter 2. Now, I want you to try to follow a line of thought that is in multiple books of the Bible. So, Hebrews chapter 2. Follow this just for a moment, okay? When I say several texts, it's hard to hang on to all this. So, just hang with me for a moment. You've got Genesis chapter 1. God puts all animals, all the creation under His feet, right? Adam and Eve are to have dominion, right? So, they have authority. They have dominion representing God, His image bearers on earth. That was the original goal. Now, they sinned, and everything got turned on its head, and now we can't even control our own life and death, right? We, 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 the things have been thrown upside down. But Adam and Eve were given dominion. Then you fast forward thousands of years, and you get to the Psalms. Psalm 8, we read at the beginning of the service, talks about how all creation is meant to be subjected under the feet of man. Remember, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly, uh, heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. And it talks about everything being put under his feet. Well, look what the author of Hebrews says about that very passage. Hebrews 2, 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, the author of Hebrews comments... Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, that's humanity, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him, this is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Now, follow this logic here. Genesis 1 Adam and Eve and humanity were given dominion over all creation. They ruined it. They messed everything up with their sin. Jesus comes as the new and last Adam, and He is going to die and rise and defeat death over the coming, the past and the future. He's going to continue to submit, uh, subject His enemies under Him. The Father does this through Christ. He subjects the enemies of Christ under His feet. And at the final return of Christ, what's going to happen? Finally, death will be completely obliterated. God will then restore and renew the whole earth, and He will reign in the new creation. And what was going to be true of Adam and Eve had they succeeded is now going to be true in a far more glorious way of Christ. He's going to be the last Adam who subjects everything under His feet, and He will have all of creation under Him, and He will give everything to God the Father. Let's turn back to 
1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 110 also speaks to this same idea of the Davidic king having his enemies subjected under his feet. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, I wish I could do more with this right now. It's a humbling experience when you're preparing for a sermon and you're not quite sure what to say about something even when it's time to preach. Like, I was supposed to figure this out before the sermon. It may be another year before I settle on some of this stuff, maybe more than that. But there's been a big debate in in the Christian world, and Greg Rents would be a good guy to talk to on this topic because he he knows more about it than I do. I know that for sure. Uh, There's there's a big debate amongst uh, theologians. Uh, A lot of them you would know good guys, generally speaking, that that you would know uh, well. And there's issues about how we should think about the Trinity and how we're supposed to think of the role of the Son in the Trinity. And what I can say safely at this moment, and I really don't know, whenever you talk about the Trinity, you are half an inch away from heresy at all times. And I don't want to commit a heresy right now. That would be really bad. So, I'm going to just keep it really safe right now. And hopefully in the future sometime, we can come back and revisit this topic when at least I have some idea of what to say. Because it's a, t- it's a tough topic. But what, what we know for certain is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all co-equal and co-eternal. They are of the same essence and the same nature Each of them is truly God. The Holy Spirit is not a second or third class deity. Jesus is not a second class deity. It's not that the Father is more divine than the Son or the Spirit. Jesus uh, is not a created being of the Father. The Holy Spirit is not a created being of the Father. But we believe that they are all equal in their essence. And so verse 28 uh, is a challenge to think through exactly the implications of that. Some people make make more of it. Some people make less. And I will have to come back to that on a day when I know uh, more what to say about it, frankly. Another topic that I'm not going to get to today, this is a great sermon. All this stuff I don't know. No, so th- th- this is one we will talk about in more detail. Uh, this one is about the, the issue of the millennium, right? In, the, in Revelation chapter 20, there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, and this passage factors into how you interpret that issue. I'm not going to say anything about that now. Here's why. It's not because I don't have anything to say about it. In this summer in June, uh, the second, third, and fourth Sunday of June, we're going to talk about the millennium for three weeks in the gym. So if, you're, if, you're, if the millennium is your thing, you want to know more about the millennium, we're going to spend three weeks in the millennium in the gym in June. So just take note of that, and we'll come back probably to this text at that time. All right, that was, uh, that was something right there. Okay, so <laughs> well, some of that will be for later. I want to move now to point number three. The Christian life and resurrection. This is verses 29 to 34, and we have another really difficult thing to deal with. This week, I was like, man, this is, this is a harder passage than I at first thought. Verse 29, if you've ever talked to a Mormon, they have brought this verse up to you. Let me read it. It's one of those strange verses. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And everyone said amen. I mean, what, what, what exactly is going on in this particular verse? Okay, so I've just got to take a moment. I do want to address this controversy. There were so many things in this passage. I thought I've got to pick what I'm going to talk about. This one I've got to talk about for just a moment here. If you've, if you've ever had a conversation with a Mormon uh, or they've come to your house or you've talked to them downtown Athens or maybe at UGA or something like that, this is a verse that is a go-to verse for them. In Mormon theology, uh, there are all kinds of issues. Number one, they don't believe Jesus is eternal. 
Number two, they don't believe the Father is eternal. Number three, I mean, they got all kinds of major Trinitarian problems, okay? They do not believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jesus is a created being of Elohim, and Elohim came from another planet, and all this kind of stuff, okay? So it's a very different world. Satan and Jesus are brothers. They were spirit babies before they were, okay, anyways. So it's a very different world, but this is a verse that they use to, to argue that you have to be, uh, bap- well, they, they believe you have to be water baptized to be saved in a Mormon uh, temple, and they also believe What about people who've died and are in uh, spirit prison, which doesn't exist, but in Mormon theology, spirit prison is where you go after you die if you haven't been baptized and completed all the different things you've got to do to be saved and reach the highest of the three heavens in Mormonism, the celestial heaven, the highest heaven. If you have not been baptized, you cannot reach the celestial heaven. And so what has to happen is if you've died as an unbaptized person, then they use this verse to say someone, maybe one of your relatives, can find your name, find out that you were not baptized. That means you're not in the celestial heaven. You're in spirit prison. So what they need to do is you need to find someone who can be baptized in your name, on your behalf. And if they're baptized on your behalf, you are then offered salvation in spirit prison. And if you believe in their baptism and you want that, then you can be released from spirit prison if you completed your other rites and you can make it into the celestial heaven. Now, do you see any of that in this? Do you see that in this verse? When you read the verse, do you see all that about those celestial heaven and all that? No, I, I don't see that. So here's what I'll say. There are, I've read this week, multiple people said there are 200 different ways to interpret this verse. One person said there's at least 40 that people really go for. In reality, we just, it's hard to be certain what this verse is talking about. But here's what I can say. Just because I'm not sure what the verse means, doesn't mean I don't know what it doesn't mean. You're welcome for that. Okay, so just because I don't know for sure what the verse is talking about, that doesn't mean I can't be sure what it's not talking about. I know for sure what the verse is not saying, even if I'm not sure exactly what the verse is saying. So, what I am certain the verse is not teaching is that you have to be water baptized to be saved, and that someone could be baptized on your behalf after you've died to get you out of spirit prison into the celestial heaven of Mormonism. I know that's what this verse is not teaching. No doubt in my mind. This is nothing whatsoever to do with Joseph Smith's theology. It's very interesting. Even the Book of Mormon never even refers to spirit baptism, uh, baptism for the dead, but yet it's a, it's a major doctrine today in Mormon teaching. I read about it on their website this week, and uh, they, they, it's a huge deal for them. Now, what does this verse mean? I, there's a couple of guesses. I'll tell you the one I think is most likely, and then we'll keep moving. Let me read it one more time. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, you'll notice here, does Paul say, what do we mean by baptizing on behalf of the dead? Does he include himself in this group? He does not. If you'll notice throughout this chapter, he keeps using himself. He'll say in verse, 20, uh, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? <clears throat> He talks about himself, verse 32, what do I gain? Normally, he includes himself in the group, but this time he does not include himself. Why? Because Paul does not do baptism for the dead. That's why he doesn't say we. He says some people do this. He doesn't say he does it. Some of you are doing it at the Corinthian church. Paul does never in the Bible are we commanded to be baptized on behalf of the dead. This is the only time it is ever mentioned in the Bible. It's never mentioned in even early church history. They don't talk about anyone doing this. But here's the guess. And Don Carson, a lot of people think this is the most likely guess. It seems like it's possible that in the Corinthian church, you know, life expectancy was pretty low and people could die very suddenly. I mean, people can always die suddenly, but it was particularly true in the 50s AD, right? So what happened likely possibly was this. Some people were converted And within a very short time after they were converted, and before they were able to be publicly baptized, what? They died. 
They died as genuine Christians, like thief on the cross, but they had not yet been baptized. And so, some of the Corinthians, with kind of a mistaken notion of baptism, just got a little bit confused. They said, well, I feel bad. So-and-so passed away, uh, and they weren't yet able to be baptized. I'm going to be baptized in their name, on their behalf. Now, that is not something we should do. It's not a biblical teaching. It's not commanded. Paul didn't do it. Here's all Paul's doing. Paul's saying, if some of you claim that there's no bodily resurrection then why are you practicing baptism on behalf of people who have died? If you don't think people are coming back for the dead, why are you doing this right for those who have died, a right that represents burial and resurrection? Why are you even doing this at all for those who have died if you don't even believe in the bodily resurrection? I don't think Paul is affirming what they're doing. I think he's simply saying what you're doing contradicts what you're saying. If you followed that, uh, I'm going to keep moving, okay? So we're, we're going to move on to this main point here. Uh, number three, the Christian life and resurrection. Verses, really verses 30 to 34. Listen to how radical Paul lives because of the truth of resurrection. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, pause here. Look at the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 8. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. Paul is in Ephesus when he writes this letter. It looks like verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And what? There are many adversaries. Okay, I don't think Paul is saying that he actually went into an arena and fought against wild animals for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was a Roman citizen, and they would not do that to a Roman citizen. Number two, if Paul fought with wild beasts in the arena, he probably would not have lived to talk about it. So I think he's speaking metaphorically. His enemies in Ephesus were as if they were wild beasts. It was like he was fighting against wild beasts. You remember the riot in Ephesus? We looked at in Acts, I think it's chapter 19. Remember, they go into the amphitheater thousands of people. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the… They yelled that for hours. And Paul wanted to go into that groom, into that arena, and preach the gospel. And they're like, Paul, it's a death sentence. Don't go in there. And they restrained Paul from going in. That was in Ephesus. That's where Paul is when he writes this. Paul says, listen, I don't have to be doing this. I could be on a vacation right now. I could be back in Jerusalem as a good Pharisee. I, I, was, I was doing pretty well there. People really liked me there. I wasn't being persecuted there. I had all the kind of stuff you could ever want there. I was well-loved. I was advancing beyond my, many of my contemporaries in my Jewish pursuits, Galatians 1 says. Why am I out here, almost certainly going to die young? I'm facing the potential of being murdered every day. Back in Jerusalem, you know, there's times where people are swearing they're taking oaths to kill me. That's coming up soon in his history. Paul says, I am facing death daily. Every hour of the day, I could be killed. People do not like me. People want to stop me. If there's no resurrection of the dead, my life is madness. My life is folly if there is no resurrection. Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Why not just, just, just party? Just party it up. Just live for the pleasure of the moment. If there's no resurrection, then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, let me just say here, that comes from Isaiah 22, when God says the Assyrians are going to come destroy the cities, and the people in the city, they don't tremble, they don't repent, they don't pull out sackcloth and mourn over their sin. What do they do? They say, if we're going to die soon, 
then let's just kill the ox and the fattened calf. Let's get a party going. Let's get the alcohol flowing. And we're just going to live like we're going to die literally tomorrow. So we're going we're, we're to have a party and we're going to go crazy. And then we're going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That, that comes from Isaiah when, when they knew that their, their, their end was coming soon. So they, instead of repenting, they wanted to party. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then just party because who cares if there is no resurrection? Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, I don't, you've probably heard that verse, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. You know what that means in context? This was somewhat new to me. The, the bad company are people who deny bodily resurrection. Have you ever thought of that verse that way? So the bad company are bad theologians, people who believe there's no bodily resurrection from the dead, and therefore, what does it do to their lifestyle? If you don't believe there's a bodily resurrection, then who cares what you do with your body? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? So Paul sees a connection between basic doctrine and lifestyle. If you believe in resurrection, you'll become radical and risk-taking for Jesus, Right? You're going to fight with wild beasts in Ephesus for the gospel if you believe it's all going to have an eternal purpose. But if you don't think there's an eternal anything, if you don't think there is uh, physical life, bodily life after death, that's going to corrupt your character. Nihilism and despair tends to lead to dissipation and debauchery. If you're a nihilist and you think there's no purpose to life and you're going to die and who cares one day, it's all going to be forgotten, then party it up while you have the time. Pursue hedonism, pursue pleasure in the moment because one day we will all be dead. Now, I'm just going to move toward a conclusion here. I know we have communion in just a moment. As I move toward a conclusion, I want to tell a story here from William Tyndale. William Tyndale was a contemporary of Martin Luther, early 1500s. He was also one of the great translators of the Bible into the, into the English language. To this day, both the King James and the ESV and NAS, a lot of these translations still use a lot of Tyndale's English translation in their works. And I listened to a message about him this week. Uh, John Piper has one called Always Singing One Note, which is online, and uh, it's worth listening to. It's over an hour long. It's really good on his life. Tyndale's life makes no sense if there's no resurrection. He gave up everything in order to get an English Bible into the hands of the common people. He wanted it to be printed and distributed, even though it was illegal and it was going to cost him his life. All he did for the time he worked was try to get an English Bible into the hands, he said, of a boy who, who, who works the plow out in the field. He wants everyone to have a Bible, and he gave his whole life for it. If there's no resurrection, that makes no sense. I want to read a couple quotes from Tyndale here. At the very end of his life, he writes a letter in prison, not long before he's going to be strangled and burned at the stake. Listen to him. This is the kind of life you live if you believe in resurrection. Tyndale writes, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has, a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too to patch my leggings, my overcoat is worn out, my shirts are also worn out, he has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it, I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above, he has also warmer nightcaps, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening, 
It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark, but most of all, this is what he wants the most in that dark cell, but most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. In return, you may obtain what you most desire. May you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. And not long after that, Tyndale would be taken to the stake because he had been a priest in the past before he had, he had become a heretic in their view. When he became Protestant, we believed in justification by faith. That was when he was in big trouble. They then strangled him at the stake, which was actually an act of mercy, and they lit his body on fire, and he died. Now listen, if there is no resurrection, those kinds of stories represent a pathetic waste of your life. We should not praise Christian martyrs if there is no resurrection. They have done something that Paul says is, of, of all people, we are most to be pitied. But if there is true resurrection from the dead, it is worth giving up everything if necessary in order to get the gospel to people who need the gospel because at the end, it will have eternal benefit and eternal reward, and it will never ultimately fall away. We're, we're going to turn to communion text, which is just right before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's bow our heads together. If you are, as you bow your heads, if you are a Christian, uh, this table, if you are a believer, a repentant believer, this table is open to you. If you're not a Christian yet, uh, please know that uh, what you need is not the elements that are here, but you need what the elements represent, which is Jesus Himself. So, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about the death of the Lord Jesus, as we think about what happened, as we thought about it last week, in, weekend in particular, what happened to Jesus' physical body, what happened to His soul on the cross as He stood in the place of sinners. His blood was poured out for us. John, the eyewitness, saw the spear pierced through the side of Jesus and likely through His heart and saw the blood and water pour out. We know, Lord Jesus, that You truly died. We know that you were buried, we know that you rose bodily from the dead, and that we know that your death for us is our only hope. Your resurrection is our only hope. God, I pray that we could truly repent of sin, that we would hate the sin that slew the Lord Jesus, and I pray that we would have a heart of great joy and faith as we think about the fact that Jesus was glad to die for His people, that He wanted and was willing to die for us because He loves us, 
and because he wanted to honor his father. And so God, I pray right now that you'd be at work in our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.